0: Welcome to the Macabre Emporium! Let me get my emotional support cat! Okay. To be quiet
1: and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children.
0: Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium, this is episode 36!
1: And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. Welcome. Not a wackadoodle, people, this week. Just throw everyone off. Ha.
0: Huh. <laughs> it's always a wackadoodle. Yep.
1: Yeah. But anyhow, not much going on in our lives again, other than we had some personal issues we had to get straightened out to solve this no episode last week. And also to help us kind of reset on getting back to our normal schedule of recording and things. Yep. But. I'm going to ask everybody if you had some kind of paranormal experience to send us in some stories so we can share them during the month of October.
0: Ooh, yeah. Spooky
1: time. Mm-hmm. We've already had some sent in to us by one listener already. Mm-hmm. Before then, we shared them in a previous episode. Yep. And we haven't looked into those stuff yet because I kind of decided we should probably keep those for October. Correct. So, next thing is, what do you have for us this week?
0: I'm doing True Crime, obviously, that those around our age, maybe a little older, may may remember. But it's about the Club Kids murderer. What are you doing?
1: I'm doing some weird history on three variations of time when males tried to be delivered by missiles or rockets.
0: Like the gender? Males?
1: Mm, no, male as in <laughs> United States Postal Service. <laughs> Type of mail.
0: <laughs> I thought you said mail, so I'm like, what?
1: No, mail delivered by missiles or rockets.
0: Makes sense. It makes more sense than what I had envisioned, I guess.
1: I guess so. Shit. <laughs> so you ready to get started then?
0: Yeah. The 1980s was filled with a ton of pop culture. Some of the greatest movies to ever exist came from this time. Can you guess who I'm thinking of? director wise
1: Um, I can't remember his name but I already know like two movies off the top of my head I'm thinking of
0: John Hughes what movies
1: 16 Candles and Breakfast Club there you go
0: (laughs) some of the absolute best music came from this time the clothing was often bright and colorful usually neons unless you were in the punk scene which today they would call goth but back then it was just punk
1: Right.
0: you know think Susie Black hair, black makeup, black clothing, black Doc Martens. That's pretty much what that was. The fashion wasn't always fashionable, however, it became a fad. And let's not forget the jelly bracelets and bangles. The ladies and the men of the 80s rocked hair bigger than a mushroom cloud and probably ruined a layer or two of the ozone with all of the aquanet they used.
1: And wood paneling everywhere.
0: Well, God, yeah. Technology was advancing, and out came MTV, which is still a thing today, but not even remotely the same as MTV back then. Right.
1: Let's test Sarah's knowledge. What was the very first music video played on MTV when it aired?
0: Uh, money for nothing. Nope. That wasn't it. Nope. What was it?
1: Video killed the radio star. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was.
0: No, it wasn't. Yes, it was.
1: Money for <laughs> nothing was the first music video to use CGI. Okay. In capacity to that, what it was.
0: I don't know why I was thinking that was the first video.
1: Probably because it's one of the very first music videos that comes to mind when you think of the 1980s.
0: It could be. As cheesy as it was.
1: Or other songs from Murray Head, maybe.
0: Nope. The 80s was a time of fun and entertainment. The teenagers and those in their 20s found a sense of freedom in the music and clubs that popped up. Dancing and music became a way of life. You find your niche. You found your people. And that's what they did. And that's when the club kids... Gathered, one of the most famous club kids to exist was an artist and an American club promoter by the name of Michael Alleg, A L I G Alleg. Michael was born in South Bend, Indiana, on April 29th, nineteen sixty six. He attended Penn High School and got straight A's during his high school career. When Michael became a teenager, he was consistently bullied after he came out as gay, which is nothing new. But I'm sure back then it was probably oh
1: yeah, that's something you didn't less talk accepted.
0: About. So once Michael graduated in 1984, he chose to move somewhere less conservative when it came down to how you lived your life. He chose to move to New York City and attend Fordham University to study architecture. After some time, he chose to transfer to the Fashion Institute of Technology. This is where he met the boyfriend of artist Keith Haring. He would show Michael what New York City nightlife was all about. And with that, Michael knew where he wanted his life to go. He dropped out of school to work at a nightclub called Danceteria as a busboy. Danceteria. Like cafeteria. Yeah. Fancy. As Michael worked at Danceteria, he also studied the business side of nightclubs and soon thereafter took the job as a party promoter. He had a real knack for thinking up and creating some of the most over-the-top parties in the scene, which sent his name skyrocketing into the club world. Michael and his regular clubbers started to present some quite flamboyant personas, which later got them the nickname of Club Kids. The clothing they wore was more costume-like than clothing. Former Club Kid James St. James described the Club Kids as being part drag, part clown, and part, in- part infantilism. The Club Kids was just a group of different people with huge dance club personalities. As you can imagine, drugs were a huge factor within that club scene, Ketamine or Special K, heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, and Rufinol, which, you know, Roofy, date rape drug. Michael was the ringleader of the Club Kids, and they came up with very imaginative names for themselves. Some of the participants in Club Kids was Jenny Talia. Okay. (laughs) Dan Dan the Naked Man, RuPaul. Yes, that RuPaul.
1: No, I was laughing at Dan Dan the Naked Man.
0: Dan Dan the Naked Man.
1: Because in um, uh, summer camp for Cub Scouts, we had Dan Dan the Nature Man. He was like the nature specialist for the camp, so that's why I was laughing about it. Oh. I have never thought of that until like just now when you said that.
0: So There was also Astro Earl, Superstar DJ Kiyoki, Lady Bunny, Angel Melendez, Richie Rich, Walt Paper, Robert Freeze Riggs, Dash Pristano, Desi Monster, and Amanda Lepore, who's a very famous crossdresser, if I remember correctly.
1: And the infamous Cotton Candy Flo,
0: (laughs) That elusive bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, the club kids started in the back rooms of small clubs and then blossomed to be front and center wherever they were. They had been known to throw parties that they called outlaw parties, which was basically them walking into McDonald's, Dairy Queen, Burger King with their boombox and throwing a fucking party in the middle of the day, which you can imagine got them kicked out numerous times. It
1: reminds me of a Vine video that I remember that I seen recently that's popped back up about some guy dressed as Ronald just screaming about let's get in. Oh, it's like, let's get McFucking twisted up in here. And he's like, just dancing <laughs> on the counter. But he's like, screaming at the top of his lungs as his family comes in.
0: Wow. Wow. People are stupid. At one point, this large group of club kids were touring the U.S. and throwing parties to certify those areas as, like, chapters of the original club kids. Yeah, They appeared on numerous talk shows such as the Phil Donahue Show, Geraldo, and Joan Rivers Show. Phil Donahue, do you remember him? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness.
1: Always oh, looking like somebody's grandpa. <laughs> he he re-
0: reminds me of the grandpa from up.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyways, many of the celebrities we know today were in some way linked to the club kids. The most famous drag queen? RuPaul. Or RuPaul. Uh Bjork.
1: Well, that explains a lot about Bjork now. Probably all the drugs from being a part of the Club Kids. <laughs>
0: Uh, and actress Chloe Sevigny.
1: No clue.
0: You wouldn't know her if you saw her. Okay. But they were just some of the celebrities that were enticed by the club kid scene. In 1988, Michael had been hired by Peter Gation, who was the owner of a club called The Limelight. Working for Peter, Michael was able to throw some of the best party at Peter's other clubs like Club USA, Tunnel, and The Palladium. Damn near every one of Michael's parties became infamous due to his own bad behavior. He would often throw $100 bills into the crowd just to watch people fight over him. He would piss on patrons or piss (laughs) in their drinks off of the second floor balcony. He would stage dive and knock others over just for the hell of it. He just wanted something to do, I guess. Sounds like it. As Michael Alec became more prominent and gained the high popularity that he did, his drug habit also skyrocketed, just like his name. He was arrested numerous times for drug-related offenses before he ultimately put himself into rehab, which didn't do much good since he continued using. Peter Gation, Michael's boss, had actually sent him to rehab in 1995, and Michael claimed that after he finished his time there, Peter fired him. It came out later that Michael had a personality disorder called histronic personality disorder, so some of the weird shit that he did made sense. With this condition, it caused high levels of attention-seeking behavior. Michaels quoted as saying, The doctor said I was the most extreme case he'd ever seen. Everything has been completely over the top and exaggerated. It worked, it worked well for my job as a promoter. One of the club kid's most notable regulars was Andre Angel Melendez. He worked at the Limelight where Michael Alec had been hired to work by Peter. He was also the resident drug dealer and used the Limelight as his home base for his drug deals and Peter Gation knew about this and he he just allowed it to happen yeah the limelight was closed for investigation by federal agents once they found out that Peter was allowing the drugs to be sold and distributed there Angel was immediately fired for something he was allowed to do in the first place like he was on payroll right not just he let you know he let him come in and and sell like he was on his payroll selling drugs and he knew that Not long after that, Angel moved in with Michael at his Riverbank West apartment. On March 17, 1996, Michael and his roommate, Robert Freeze Riggs, killed Angel after an argument and a physical fight. One of the things that was a huge fighting topic Mm -hmm. was money that was owed for drugs. Right. You know, go figure. Michael said numerous times that he was too high on drugs to remember what had happened and that the events of the murder were still unclear to him. But what became clear was how Angel died. During the physical fight between Michael and Angel, Michael cried out for help. So Robert came running in with a hammer and hit Angel three times in the head with it. After that, Michael grabbed either a sweatshirt or a pillow. The stories that I read...
1: And alternated what it was.
0: yeah. But yeah, he used whatever it was, sweatshirt, pillow, to smother Angel. He then poured a chemical into his mouth and duct taped it shut. The two men then took all of Angel's clothing off and placed him in a bathtub full of ice. And his body laid there for almost a week. Oh, jeez. According to Robert, the two purchased a cleaver and two chef's knives at a local Macy's. And with these kitchen items, Michael dismembered Angel's legs before wrapping them in separate garbage bags, putting one in its own duffel bag, and then dumping them into the Hudson River. The day after the men dumped Angel's legs into the river, they wrapped the upper body up in a plastic bag and a sheet. They covered it in a cardboard box big enough to fit it. They made sure to remove anything that would link back to them, including the UPC code on the box. Together, the men walked the heavy box down to the elevator, rode down, and walked it through the main lobby. They then placed it in the trunk of a yellow cab that was sitting just outside of the apartment complex. Robert confessed that, We took the body to West Side Highway around 25th Street. The taxi drove off and we threw the box into the river. Michael gave his side of the story, which gave different details than Robert's side had. Michael stated that he used liquid Drano and baking soda to get rid of the smell of the decomp that had taken place in the week's time that his body laid in, you know, in the tub. I
1: don't know about all that, but...
0: What, if it would work or not? Yeah. I don't, I I don't know. Michael initially claimed that he killed Angel in self-defense, but later on admitting to committing manslaughter. Angel's father and brother went to the press for help on the whereabouts of their missing loved one. On September 8th in 1996... Okay, so I've heard this two... Well, read this two different ways, too. One stated that it was a homeless woman that found the body. Well, the torso. And that um, the other one was that it was, like, two young boys that found it. So which one it was, no clue. Right, But either way, somebody discovered the torso, and it was pulled from the water and identified as a John Doe. The Staten Island Police Department had to use dental records to figure out who the person was. The coroner had misidentified the person as being an Asian male, but on November 2nd, 1996, the mutilated partial corpse was identified correctly by dental records this time, as being that of Andre Angel Melendez. Now Michael knew he fucked up and he fled before the authorities could get to him. He took off to Toms River, New Jersey. There he moved into a motel room with his boyfriend of the time, who was a drug dealer named Brian. However, the law caught up with him, and on December 5th, 1996, Michael was caught and arrested at that motel. Hours after Michael's arrest, Robert was arrested in Manhattan. Michael kept claiming that he and Robert killed Angel in self-defense, and hacked up the body, wrapped it up, and discarded it in the river out of panic.
1: Sure, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've ever heard of somebody's, you know, saying, oh, we killed in self-defense and then live with the body for a fucking week and then hack it up and then throw it into a body of water of some sort.
0: Right. I mean, you'd think you would panic right then and not a week later be like, well, fuck, let's panic now. Let's get rid of the body. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, people are stupid. Robert confessed to the authorities by saying on Sunday in March of 1996, I was at home and Michael Alec and Angel Melendez were loudly arguing and getting louder. I opened the room and started towards the other bedroom, at which point Michael Alec was yelling, help me, get him off of me. Angel started shaking him violently and banging him against the wall. He was yelling, you better get my money or I'll break your neck. I grabbed the hammer and hit, it and hit Angel over the head. He also confessed to hitting him in the head three times with that hammer. He then went on to describe what Michael had done with the chemicals in his mouth, as well as the smothering. Prosecutors were wary of charging Michael with first-degree murder because they were hoping he would testify against his former boss, Peter Gation, for allowing the drugs to be sold in his establishments. They felt if they worked with him on this plea that he might be inclined to help them with Peter. But alas, both Michael and Robert were offered plea deals, sentences from 10 to 20 years, But only if they pled guilty to manslaughter, which was a lesser charge. They both did that on October 1st, 1997. They pled guilty and earned themselves 10 to 20 years in prison. Michael's incarceration led him to be transferred from prison to prison within the New York State prison system. He also did time in the psychiatric ward at Rikers Island. I have never heard anything good about that place.
1: I don't think I have either. Maybe it might be, I guess you could say, a road trip episode we can do something on rikers island
0: Ew. most fucked up prisons in each state maybe Ooh, that'd be cool anyways in 2000 he was placed in solitary confinement after being caught using heroin at the southport correctional facility he remained there for two and a half more years after that because he kept failing his drug tests no shock sure. <laughs> all right michael was eligible for parole in 2006 so in November 2006, his first parole request, which was denied. Michael claims it was because the officers had watched the movie Party Monster starring Macaulay Culkin who played the role of him. He was denied again in July of 2008 due to numerous failed drug tests. In March of 2009, Michael decided he finally wanted to quit using and he stated that he's been sober ever since.
1: <clears throat> well, get on that, but fuck you for killing somebody.
0: Correct. Michael was granted parole on May 5th, 2014. The conditions of his parole was that he was to return to New York City. He had to adhere to an 8 p.m. curfew, random drug tests, anger management counseling, as well as job readiness training. And obviously none of those things were on his radar. Right. Once back home, many of the original club kids came to Michael to offer him aid or help him get, you know, just set back up in life in society at the end of 2014 michael had attempted to make a career out of pop music and released an ep called what's in that didn't take him very far so he turned to literal art and in june 2015 michael held his one and only show in three different art galleries at the same time the invitations were handmade and only contained the address of where the invitee was invited to Though all of the careers he tried to set for himself, he always returned back to his club kids' roots. On February 2nd, 2017, Michael was arrested again for trespassing in Joyce Kilmer Park to smoke crystal meth at 1.30 in the morning. He was brought into the station solely for being in the park at 1.30 because it closed at dusk. However, once they got him to the station... You know, they have to pat you down, right? and they wound up finding a baggie of crystal meth in his pocket, (laughs) so he was, you know, jailed, and he pled guilty for that, too. He did get back into hosting parties, but this time virtually. He hosted virtual Zoom parties every Saturday night during the COVID pandemic, along with a few of the other original Club Kid members. On December 23rd, 2020, just after midnight, Michael was found unconscious by his ex-boyfriend in their home. He had used heroin and gotten really sick due to it and was pronounced dead at the scene. He was only 54 years old. The day after Christmas, Michael's mother came out and confirmed the cause of her son's death was from an accidental heroin overdose. The medical examiner verified in May of 2021 that Michael hadn't died from just heroin. He also had fentanyl, acetyl fentanyl, which is like an offshoot of fentanyl, like a, a sister yeah
1: like a brand version of it
0: Yeah and that's been clinically Proven to be Several times stronger than just Pure heroin He also had the meth in his system At the time of his death And that was kind of the end of the club kids
1: well, I'm sure once uh, the ringleader Was gone
0: Yeah And the club kid. Well, he was the club kid murderer. Yeah. Him and Robert, Robert Freeze Riggs. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Considering that RuPaul was running around in a circle like that, you know.
0: This is back when RuPaul had like spiky hair.
1: Yeah.
0: And was still, you know, mostly male. <laughs>
1: So was it wasn't... mostly
0: masculine.
1: So was it wasn't RuPaul as we know it today. It basically? wasn't.
0: It wasn't RuPaul. No. Okay. Nope.
1: So you ready to hear about mail being delivered by missiles and rockets? Ah, yes. Yeah, I know it sounds kind of boring, but I still found this interesting because I had the visions of like Wiley e. Coyote chasing Roadrunner oh, on his giant rockets that he'd have. Mm-hmm. Is what I envisioned reading some of this stuff. Gotcha. Especially the second one so this originally started off being about one thing in particular and there wasn't a whole lot of information so i looked to see if there's other variations of of this particular subject and i happened to find some and there is some european like variations of this from the sixth uh, that's from the 19th century but i'm focusing on three versions of it here in the united states okay With next-day delivery or same-day delivery by drones with Amazon in some areas, or some call it skeet shooting with prizes, (laughs) I was curious on how in our past we have tried to deliver packages in the mail faster than using trucks or trains. Everyone's first thought might come to being the Pony Express with promises of mail from Sacramento to St. Louis in 10 days or less by horseback, which still seems like a lot of time today, but for the the year the service existed, it was a big deal. 10 days? Only 10 days. Yeah. And they could be a whole episode on their own, too.
0: The Pony Express? Mm-hmm.
1: One of the early trials of missile mail, or mail by rocket, took place in New Jersey in 1936 when a stamp dealer by the name of Fredo W. Kessler thought he could profit by having mail delivered by a rocket-propelled plane deliver a bag of mail with special stamps of his own design, then make a profit selling off the special rocket mail as souvenirs. Kessler would go on to create the Rocket Airplane Cor- Corporation and hire a German rocket expert named Wiley Ley that recently immigrated to the United States after fleeing Germany as the Nazis came to power. Kessler would ha- also have Lay design the plane itself along with the stand he would launch the rocket plane from. Kessler would actually have two planes constructed. The second would be designed by Dr. Alexander Clemen, of the Guggenheim Institute of Aeronautics. So this guy knows what he's doing because you got that name Guggenheim attached to it. I would hope so. <laughs> Each of these planes would be constructed from dirt aluminum, which is an earlier type of aluminum that can be hardened. These planes would be 14 feet in length and a wingspan of 16 feet, and they only weighed 60 pounds apiece.
0: The entire plane was mm-hmm. only 60 pounds but wow. without
1: fuel in it. This was, oh, okay. So the main body of itself was 60 pounds without a fuel its fuel and its load a gas powered catapult would help launch these planes into flight before kessler's rocket mail planes would take flight he took out full page ads and stamp collecting magazines offering stamps for 50 cents and flown covers which is not an envelope which i first thought it was Mm -hmm. it is actually like a hard cardstock cover that goes over your envelope to help protect it okay and these covers or envelopes however you want to look at them as it would be 75 cents. So for the stamps was $11 and five cents today. And the covers would be $16 and 58 cents here in 2023 when we're doing this episode,
0: $11, $11, $11 for, for a stamp. stamp,
1: a very, a very special rocket mail stamp.
0: Jesus.
1: Just like model trains or anything collectible. It's only worth how much anyone's going to be worth paying. Right. John G. Silic of Greenwood Lake, New York and stamp, Andy, stamp collector himself would campaign to have this rocket plane launch take there it was an ideal location for the launch since the lake would be frozen solid during the winter months their plan was to collect all the purchased stamps, letters, and postcards totaling 2,500 pieces total and placing them inside an asbestos lined bag in the back of the fuselage of the rocket and launch it into Hewitt, New Jersey on the south end of the lake 2.5 miles away Kessler expected his rocket to reach a top speed of 500 miles per hour this first launch would be on February 9, 1936, and 500 people showed up to witness this historic event. The superintendent of airmail services, Charles Greddick and Edward Pendry of the American Rocket Society were among the spectators. After a christening attempt by John Slague's five-year-old daughter, Gloria, with a cup of snow, but it had frozen solid in the cup. And the two rocket planes are named after his five-year-old daughter, Gloria. Mm. After this christening ceremony that they tried, Gloria One, we'll just say, was put on the catapult and was ready for launch. The first attempt was canceled due to the extreme cold, and an hour later, as the sun is now higher in the sky, the second plane was loaded on the 45-foot ramp. Lay was shout to everyone to stand back as he applied a torch to the motor, igniting the gasoline, methane, and alcohol mixture for the fuel, and the rocket didn't leave the, leave the ramp. The cable to release it was frozen solid because of how oh cold no. it was. So after they end up thawing out this release cable and their second attempt was made. Once again, late nights, the rockets of the main engine, instead of taking off the ramp with the chariots of fire playing montage sequence style with everyone cheering in slow motion as it soars across the sky it actually lands six feet on the ground in front of the catapult.
0: <laughs> wah, wah, wah.
1: <laughs> There is actually a video of... This first rock, this first attempt that you can actually see it like start to shoot off and just whoop, whoop, oh, right under the ice. Kessler would blame the cold and the liquid oxygen freezing up because of that in the feed lines, and decided to try again in two weeks that hopes the weather might have cleared up and it might warm up some more. Mm-hmm. Some members of the crowd would point out that they were only four hundred yards away from the mm-hmm. state line and they could just throw the mail over there mm-hmm. instead. Even with this heckling, Kessler wouldn't lose his enthusiasm to accomplish his goal. I'm really dead serious about this, you know. What happened was the motor had been ignited, and the mechanic that was stationed to release the catapult failed to do so. Now the motor runs only for three minutes, and it had already gone through three quarters of a minute worth of fuel before the mechanic released the cable. Practically, all the power had been used up, and instead of rising, it went slowly to the top and glided down. This is... What Kessler went to go on and tell on about to the newsreels at the time. Mm-hmm. And also was, was the pressure from having the newsreels in this crowd watching is what he believes is was some of the reasons why it didn't launch. So some things might have got overlooked because of the stress of trying to make sure this all goes to plan.
0: Oh, I can imagine.
1: So two weeks later on, is a second attempt. More than 500 people now showed up this time
0: more pressure <laughs> right because
1: everybody's now talking about this whole rocket launch thing mm-hmm. so now more people know about it from just ads that were placed in the you know and then word about the the area yeah along with this 500 this now 500 plus crowd newsreel cameramen show up and cbs sends radio commentators to witness of this event so with a much larger crowd and a live radio broadcast the pressure was even higher Willie Lay and his fellow engineers advised Kessler it was still too cold to try and launch his rocket plane. But Kessler didn't want to disappoint people a second time and he was afraid they wouldn't return if he had ordered the launch to be canceled. So he continued on with it anyway. Mm-hmm. Gloria would be refueled and loaded onto the catapult and Lay this time would ignite Gloria's engine and that flame shot from her engine with a shriek. Gloria would take flight in the sky and veering to the left slightly, closely circling to the onlookers and then straightening out before crash landing into the frozen lake. Gloria was badly damaged in her landing and it wouldn't be able to fly again. However, it did make it across the state line into New Jersey. The mail inside the rocket would be collected by Willie Lay and taken by Slay to the Hewitt Post Office to be stamped by the Postmaster. Mission accomplished, and the stamps collectors are now happy. The rockets named Gloria wouldn't fly again after the second one fly, uh, being set up for a flight. Her wings ended up folding fifty feet into the flight. Oh Kessler ended up discovering later on that this that his rockets were intentionally sabotaged before their February ninth flights. He found the fuel lines being bent at right angles similar to what you would do with a garden hose when you're using it as a as you went as a harmless prank to somebody. Mm-hmm. The bends in these fuel lines would result so with that being kinked it would keep the liquid oxygen from reaching the motor, basically, is mm-hmm. what happened with that. And there was also other cuts as well were found along the lines. Didn't specify what other lines, it just said the lines were cut.
0: So it was sabotaged.
1: Yeah, yeah. he found this all out after he inspected the two okay. Glorias afterwards. And he also found dirt and grit as he described it inside of its fuel tanks. He was actually... Kessler was quite astonished that neither one of these things exploded because of this intentional sabotage Eek. his best guess was that it was a disgruntled mechanic that had worked on this project that I guess you could say was acting on his revenge when other people were like had more attention on this whole rocket plane mail project than he was getting so he wasn't getting any attention nobody's gonna get it more than like is my guess is why this was right In 2021, one of the Glorias would actually reappear and be turned over to the Warwick Municipal Airport and later on restored and put on display at the Tedderboro Airport Aviation Hall of of Fame Museum.
0: That's a mouthful.
1: Yeah. And I did find some pictures of one of these Gloria rockets, and it's very basic. It almost looks like it's made out of duct tape.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: Just because of the color gray that it is. Super safe. <laughs> it is just what it looks like to me when I looked at him. I mean, it almost look like the grayish color here not in the office here at the Emporium mm-hmm. is about the same color as what this Gloria rocket looks like. Now, this also wouldn't be the only time in history we would try and deliver mail by rocket or missile. Later on in 1936, similar attempts would be made for the first international rocket air mail flight.
0: International?
1: Mm-hmm. I know, it sounds like, oh shit, we're stepping the game up quickly here.
0: What, is it just Canada to like Buffalo or something? No. No?
1: But yeah, that's it's along the lines, but not the right location. Okay. On July 2nd, 1936, the patrons of the U.S. bar in Hildago, Mexico would have quite the sudden shock while nursing their shots of tequila and their beers when a rocket comes flying into the bar that this was one of the five rockets launched by a 16-year-old by the name of Keith Rumble.
0: 16 years old?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: (laughs) So, Keith Rumble and his father Oliver came up with this idea for the American Legion Post Number Thirty Seven in McAllen, Texas, that Oliver was a member of, was trying to finance and own their own building, which was like a feat for itself in this very small town, Mm -hmm. and to be the first South. Uh, American Legion in the Southwest United States and part of Texas to accomplish this feat. Keith came up with the idea to make special stamps that they could sell to raise money for the American Legion Post after hearing about the rocket planes in New York. Keith told his father that if we launched them into Mexico from Texas and then back, it would make it international mail since these two towns were only separated by the Rio Grande River. (laughs) Okay. His father thought this was a great idea. The Legion would sell triangular-shaped rocket stamps for $0.50 as well, just as Kessler did in New York. And one of the things that was in there was, you can buy them for $0.50 each or a pack of four for $2. (laughs) I know. Math. Right. They just, they probably, if you said it right, you're going to trick somebody and like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great deal.
0: When you're literally paying what you would pay anyways. (laughs)
1: Now, Keith's rockets would be constructed from cardboard and fiberboard, and you would think, like, my first thought of this was like the wily e. Coyote-looking rockets, basically. Mm-hmm. His rockets were only actually about 7 inches in length and 12 inches in diameter, but to sell them for the news story, they grew to be about 7 feet in length by the newspapers. Unlike Kessler's rockets using fuel crafted by expert, theirs was fueled by gunpowder, so his were more like oh, glorified, shit. you know, <laughs> fireworks. Yep. After getting permission from both the United States and Mexico, reluctantly on July second, it would be this big day. Now, Keith, this wasn't just like a will, like on a whim idea that Keith had. He actually had a huge fascination in rocketry. He like would launch rockets from their backyard, but he would keep them tethered to their clothesline, mm-hmm. so they wouldn't go out out of the range of their backyard.
0: So they're just gonna hit the end of their rope and just like drop.
1: Well, this is when he was just playing with them as a hobby in his backyard. Okay. So this wasn't his first time messing with rockets. Mm -hmm. So even at 16, that being his main hobby, he knew what he was doing for the most part with this rocket launch. Yeah. This might be the only time in history that two countries might have fired off rockets at each other for the fun of it, you can say, because any other time two countries are shooting rockets at each other, it's for, you know, bloodshed. The first rocket would be lit by the American Legion historian Garland Adair, and this rocket would explode over the river about 100 yards away from what was originally launched. The second rocket would go sailing into the U.S. bar that I mentioned in the beginning, and some of the bargoers swore off drinking after a rocket landed inside. <laughs> Mexico officials insisted on calling it the U.S. bar tragedy after this happened
0: the u.s bar tragedy. that was the
1: actual name of the bar
0: oh geez okay
1: and their biggest advertisement point was the only beer in mexico that's what huh on the pictures of the u.s bar that was right there on the sign the only beer in mexico and u.s bar was the name of it hmm. the third rocket took on its own trajectory and landed on the roof of a house along the river and just by chance, this house was one of the very few houses in the area with shingled roofs instead of a thatching which it landed on, which more than likely would have caught fire if it landed on one of those roofs. Yep. Rocket number four would end up landing in a cornfield and catching it on fire. Now, I couldn't find out anything on to what happened to the fifth and final rocket. Some sources said that it was confiscated by the Mexican government, even though I don't know how they can do that when it's in the United States still mm-hmm. from being launched. But those that other ones, I guess you could say, did land in Mexico without incident, really. Well, the two out of the five. Yeah. So Mexico would collect up what rockets they had, and they never specified if they had their own rockets because all the sources did say that Mexico ended up shooting five rockets back to the United States as well.
0: But not mail rocket.
1: You can still find some of these postcards and these stamps. They can go anywhere from $50 to $150 online today on stamp collecting websites yeah and these aren't tiny little stamps these are not like the size of stamps that we get now Mm -hmm. like the baseline of this triangle is probably like an inch and a half to almost two inches so this is like a good size fucking stamp so 23 years after that this in 1959 the united states government now takes their hand on rocket mail by using a cruise missile (laughs)
0: <laughs> America
1: <laughs> Postmaster General was quoted during this experiment Before man reaches the moon Mail will be delivered within hours from New York to California To Britain to India Or Australia by guided missiles We stand on the threshold of rocket mail Despite his enthusiasm The Department of Defense saw this more as a demonstration Of the U.S. Mi- missile capabilities Than a future future of logistics For the U.S. mail mm-hmm because this is going on right in the middle of the Cold War, so this is a nonchalant way, I guess you could say, fuck around and find out, basically. Yeah. With this with this cruise missile that we're using. But unlike the previous rockets I mentioned before, the missiles that just kind of went wherever they wanted, these had advanced guidance systems on it that could guide these missiles to where it needed to go with successful landing to its destination. June 9th, 1959, submarine USS barabo. Would launch a 13,000-pound Regulus cruise missile from its deck to a naval base 100 miles away to the naval station in Mayport, Florida. This missile was designed for nuclear payloads, but this particular Regulus 1 class missile carried 3,000 letters addressed to President Eisenhower, Vice President Nixon, Congressmen, state governors, and all Postmaster Generals in the Postal Union. Uh, with this letter, this is what it would standard typed out letter that everybody received said. Your receipt of this letter marks an historic milestone in the use of guided missiles for our communications between the peoples of Earth. It represents, too, the close cooperation of Secretary of Defense McElroy, Department of Defense, and the Post Office Department in utilizing scientific advances of peaceful purposes. A limited number of letters identical to this one were placed in the Regulus 1 training guided missile on the guided missile submarine USS Barbero in the first official missile mail experiment on the United States Post Office Department. This missile was flown at near the speed of sound from international waters of the Atlantic Ocean by the USS Barbero while on regular training mission. After the Regulus One reached its destination at the Naval Auxiliary Air Station at Mayport, Florida, near Jacksonville, this letter was canceled and forwarded to you as a significant palethic souvenir. Hmm. Great progress being made in guided missilery will be utilized in every practical way in the delivery of the United States mail, you can be certain that the post office department will continue to cooperate with the defense department to achieve this objective. Even with the success of Ridgeless One launching and landing in Florida safely, the cost of this project can never be justified by the Department of Defense as this mail, missile mail project took place right in the middle of the Cold War. So our country's defense was more important than getting your cookies delivered to you by your right. grandma. Yeah. Like within an hour of them being made basically. Mm-hmm. That is just some short variant like versions of the time we try to deliver mail by missile or rockets.
0: That's interesting. hmm But now look at all the different ways that mail right. comes to you.
1: And like now you can see the videos of the drones hovering above your mm-hmm. yard and just bloop, dropping a box in your front yard these days. Yeah. Yeah, and you can also find some of the other like I couldn't find any of these letters anywhere. Just Mm -hmm. the curiosity of which they're going for, or any of the stuff from the nineteenth, from the earlier nineteen thirty six, the ones from New Jersey. I found pictures, but I didn't find them like on the auction site, like I did the ones from Texas.
0: Hmm. I wonder why.
1: Could be that there's so little of them. When I came across all this, there was another variation, uh, a weird. Way of mail, I guess, well, not weird to us. Weird to us, but not to people that have to do it. It's called tin can mail, which I might do as another episode, another day. It's how a very secluded island has their mail delivered to them.
0: Tin cans, man, mm, kind of,
1: huh? Other than people have to swim through shark-infested waters.
0: Yeah, oh, fuck all of that.
1: <laughs> they don't no longer do it this way.
0: I would hope not. Technology has no. come far no. enough that you the, don't their have their mail to... comes by airplane now. But <laughs> <They> this was. <laughs>
1: But they did it this way for quite a few years before a airstrip strip was built on this island. It's because we've been in the Emporium today sir so sitting here yawning across from me so it might be time for us to close up for today. I agree. So until next time.
0: Remember, 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 remember.
1: remember to creep it real. I guess I better do it for this way.
0: Remember to creep it real. <laughs> okay. Bye! Bye. please check out our website at macabre join our facebook group by searching macabre emporium like and subscribe on youtube at macabre emporium podcast follow us on twitter at macabre emporium and if you have any stories of the paranormal your local true crime or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on email us at macabre at gmail.com Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast. Former club kid James St. James described the club kids as part drag, part cloud. (laughs)
1: Where did fucking cloud come from?
0: (laughs) It's supposed to be clown.